You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We know about it, about our national debt. Of course we do. People have been saying over and over again for decades that it's very high and that we need to do something because there is a risk. It might become unserviceable, untenable. But by now it's become too big to really worry about it. As we write now, it's 2.25 trillion euros, a quantity of money so immense that it transcends human understanding and becomes an absolute and indubitable entity, invisible and yet certain, as distant as we hope our own death to be. We no longer feel as if it's ours, and we can never repay it. There are already people clamoring in the streets that we ought to stop bankrupting the country just trying to service the interest on it. It's the cost of the life we've been living we tell ourselves, of the country that we built, of the rights that we won for ourselves, of the incompetence and corruption of those who governed us in the 1980s, when that debt exploded, damn it, almost doubling over the course of 15 years. But now that we have factories closing and people demonstrating in the streets, should we worry about a national debt of 2.25 trillion euros? It would be like worrying about the fact that in several billion years the sun is going to nova and then burn out, and so we pay no attention to it. We pretend nothing is happening, all of us, a whole country. It's the most colossal case of collective denial in history. Eduardo Nessi is a filmmaker, writer, translator, and politician. His work includes the novel The Story of My People, which won the 2011 Striga Prize, and Aleta del Boro, which was a finalist for the 2005 Striga Prize and winner of the Bruno Cavallini Prize. Nessie wrote and directed the film Fujo de Farmao, based on his novel of the same name, and he translated David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest into Italian. In 2013, he was elected to the Italian Parliament's Chamber of Deputies. His co-author is Guido Mari Brera, a founding partner and chief investment officer in the Kairos Group, an Italian investment company created in 1999. He's the author of I Diavoli. Their book is Everything is Broken Up in Dances, The Crushing of the Middle Class. Thank you for joining me, Eduardo. Thank you for inviting me. This is such an interesting take on the last uh, 20 or so years. You begin with with a really beautifully written scene uh, set in the millennium. Why did you choose that scene? And just describe it to us because you capture a really interesting emotional moment. This is a book that has a lot to do with finances, but also has a lot to do with the emotions, both yours and uh, Guido's. Well, thank you. Um, The book starts with the Millennium Gala, the colossal party that was given at the White House on the last day of the millennium. And it tells the story of how 
uh, everything seemed to be at its peak at that time. We we follow the uh, speech of Bill Clinton, which uh, which is very interesting, and uh, in its optimism, it it was a time when uh, global globalization was still believed to be some kind of panacea for the world, panacea, uh, like a fantastic gift to everybody. And uh, we wanted to keep that spirit and put it at the beginning of the book because even if, if, if the book uh, relates and tries to tell the story of Italy, it really tries to tell the story of the United States too. And uh, also there was... Um, a joke, uh, some kind of joke between me and Guido, that we wanted to open the book with uh, Bill Clinton and finish the book with the inauguration speech of Hillary Clinton. So the difference between a husband and a wife in 20 years of globalization, unfortunately, it didn't go that way. The world had other plans. <laughs> uh, now, you and Guido are are at least on paper very different people you're the uh, an author you've written novels you're the scion of a family who has a long history of italian uh, fabric production um that that's you <laughs> and you're also a member uh, of of the uh, italian uh, government um guido is a is a you know a bond trader how did you guys meet, and how did you begin this your actual conversation, and then how did you b begin this literary conversation? Well, it's funny. We had common friends, and they kept telling Guido that uh, he should meet me. He should know me. He, we should get in touch. And the same thing they were telling me. And so um, both um, at the beginning, me and Guido, we said... Well, we, we don't like this idea that we should get together, you know, so just because everybody was selling, saying the same thing. And uh, uh, then when we met, I was um, a bit skeptical because, you know, he's, a, as, Tom, as Tom Wolf would say, one of the masters of the universe. He's a <laughs> exactly. Very, yes, he's a very well-known money manager. He's been, he's won awards for this. So he's a, uh, He's very rich too, so and I had I was a bit skeptical about the possibility of getting together, but then I found uh, I met a person who was uh, very worried about the state of the economy, not only in Italy but in Europe and even in the United States, and uh, uh, all his richness was not protecting him from a sense of uh, uh, sometimes also guilt and uh, anxiety. And uh, so I, I really like this uh, this double this double aspect of his life. And then we started to discuss about things, and uh, and then we decided that uh, we could try to write a book in which our very different lives could be together. And uh, um, so every everyone was writing a chapter. I was writing a chapter, and Guido was writing the following. And uh, uh, I think it's a very interesting contrast, uh, both in our lives and in our opinion. Uh, I thought that uh, the the contrast between the two was so wonderful because 
it gives us a truly three-dimensional perspective on a crisis that we're used to only hearing one dimension of. Uh, could you talk uh, about um, just the the what your perspective was? You came from a, a background, a manufacturing background. You are, you know, the son of, of a manufacturing family. Uh, talk about how that felt growing up and, and how that felt as you got into the 21st century? Well, uh, you know, I had a fantastic uh, youth, in a way. Uh, all around, I was living in a small city, uh, 200,000 people, very near to Florence, where uh, there, there was um, um, a long tradition of making fabrics. We used to make fabrics uh, from everything, almost uh, really from everything in the sense that we were recycling wool in the 50s and 60s. There were people that were able to uh, understand the composition of the fabrics just by touching it, you know? Mm -hmm. And they were um, touching these, well, because they were not touching on only fabrics, even if a leftover coat from the United States was coming to Prato and these people just with the touch could understand what wool is made of. And uh, we um, we made very good fabrics. We were uh, we were good. I mean, we were working with uh, all the Italian designers that you know. You name one, we were working with them. So we we seem to be to live in one of the, maybe the best of possible worlds because all around us, our workers, for example, where many of them were from the south of Italy, and they came to my little hometown, and they started to. Uh, to feel, to have well-being since the first day because all, all the money that was uh, earned in Prato was distributed. I mean, there was no um, scion. There was no um, um, very rich man and all the other had nothing. There was a system of distribution of the wealth which was very particular and very special and everything seemed to be perfect. And then and then globalization came and changed everything. You know, I think that one of the things that I found most compelling about the book was your the emotional aspect of this. This is a book that's fraught with, I think, maybe grief um, for, for something that never happened or could have happened or something that came in past. When you were writing the prose, I mean... And going back and forth with Guido, did you do these as letters, the emails, and add, tack one on to the end? I mean, did you find yourself succumbing to the emotional arc that the book itself creates? Yes, it was very emotional since the beginning because uh, uh, in order to make the book uh, uh, successful in, in its, uh, in its uh, essence, I had to write uh, uh, the most... Uh, difficult part of my life, my part of my story. I had to, for example, to explain what it feels like the day after that you have sold your textile company and you are the third generation. And so you have sold everything your family had. And then you wake up and you take your kids to school and you have breakfast. And then all in front of you, there is an, a totally empty day. And then you realize that uh, there will be many of these totally empty days in front of you. You, are not, you, are, you are, have not only lost your job, 
you have not only lost money, you have lost, in in this case, in my case, it was so at least, uh, you have lost your place in the world. Your identity. I started to feel that, I started to feel that my identity was uh, was in danger. I mean, who was I? I had sold everything my father had created, and for a, for a penny, I mean, for nothing. And so I had to reinvent everything in a world that was constantly changing and shattering all our certainties. You know, uh, I think that the the loss of certainty is one of the things that this book grieves so effectively. It really demonstrates how easily the rug can be pulled out from beneath us. And, I mean, we're all just wily E. Coyote hanging off that cliff with our legs churning, <laughs> waiting for not the other shoe to drop, but ourselves and our lifestyles. Yes, you know, it was uh, it was sudden, really, it was sudden. All of a sudden, our wonderful fabrics were not uh, wonderful anymore, in the sense that maybe they were too wonderful. Mm. Nobody wanted to buy them anymore. There were substitutions, replacements for them coming from from China, usually, at a, at a fraction of the price. And uh, the world suddenly seemed content to go on with this uh, lower quality. And all of a sudden, you start to think that maybe what's your place in the world if what you do is not is too good for the world, <laughs> in a way? It's complicated, you know. That's one of the things I think this book is, is also very good at, is to tear up, take apart the, the complicated and contradictory aspects of our of our um, economy. Now, I think you do a great job of laying out, I, I guess, what would be called harbingers and, and setting up omens. And there's one point where I think it's uh, Guido writes, on December 11th, 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization, the WTO, and on January 1, 2002, Euro banknotes went into circulation in Austria, Belgium, from Finland, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Portugal, and Spain. And so talk about that, that moment that, because the entry of China into the WTO is, is really, as they like to say, a game changer. Yes, it's it's a game changer in a sense that uh, all of a sudden um, Italian uh, and European and even American manufacturing uh, took a terrible hit because uh, uh, China is a uh, is a country that is, uh, uh, for example, in textile it has a, a tradition that goes back centuries. I mean, they have always been good in making textile. Kashmir is from China, so they are. Uh, they are very good at it. And all of a sudden, everything we produced seemed to be uh, in danger of being replaced uh, with something that was coming from China. And uh, the uh, the fall of the borders uh, uh, brought this upon us. But what really strikes me, and strikes me even now, it's how fast it went, this, trans- this transformation. Uh, and then we, we found ourselves, uh, you know, our economists, our experts, our politicians, even our uh, 
uh, journalists, they were all uh, telling us, they've been telling us for years that that would have been a fantastic day for us because we said, your products will invade the Chinese market, <laughs> you know? There was this fable of this uh, huge uh, theoretical um, Chinese middle class that was uh, uh, dying to buy our products, our made in Italy. And um, and we started to believe in it. Then we found out that there is no middle class that uh, in China that <laughs> wants to buy our things. <laughs> it doesn't really exist. It, it, it's just it, it's the fake. Maybe the the fakest of the fake news that, that they were telling us. Y you know. And we see. Go ahead. No, no. I was just saying that uh, um, uh, we felt betrayed by the people that uh, we put our trust in. Uh, they made a huge mistake, and this is also very interesting because I'm sure they made it in good faith. They were not, uh, let's say, servants of the corporations, okay? Uh, I don't believe in any kind of conspiration. Uh, but the, the, the dimension of the mistake was incredible. Just to, just to give an example, Italy in a few in a few years, Italy lost one quarter, uh, one fourth of its um, of its industrial production, and millions of people were left unemployed. And then the same thing happened in Spain, in Portugal, in Greece. It happened in France too. And uh, uh, you know, it was strange because at the beginning I thought that I was not able to sell fabrics like my father had done before. So I said, I'm guilty. <laughs> I am the problem. I, I sold the company because I was not able to, to bring it on. And then I started to see how many other companies all around me and all around Europe were, were going bad. Even my German customers, for example, uh, they started to go bad. And, uh, and then all of a sudden it became a, a problem for, for all Europe. And so I said, uh, there is something bigger than me, so I'm not the only one guilty, maybe. You know, uh, when you were talking about how fast it happened, it made me think of something that, that often occurs to me. Uh, there's a piece written by a Polish statistician, uh, Stanislaw Lem, where he posits what he calls the pericolypse, which is an apocalypse that comes to pass only nobody notices because everybody's too busy to notice. And I think that your book is a, a beautiful description of just this, that we're all busy living our lives and trying to figure out how to get by, and even that contributes to the end of the world that we're living in. No, thank you. It's, it's great to hear about uh, Lamb, which is one of my favorite authors when I was reading science. I've been reading science fiction for all of my youth. Uh, and then I, I started with Tolstoy, so I'm, I'm still <laughs> very tied to, to science fiction. And yes, uh, sometimes it feels exactly like this. There was an apocalypse, and nobody, nobody realized but the ones who were who are, uh, hit by the apocalypse. Take the example of Greece, for example. Um, Guido, in his chapters, he says a lot about how the um, Greek crisis uh, developed and uh, and how it was resolved, even if it's not really resolved even now. 
uh, you start to think that a country can default. And it's something that for us, for us Europeans, was um, unconceivable. You know, how can a country default? What happens if a country defaults? I mean, what, uh, there are no more policemen on the streets? What, what about the hospitals? What about the church? What about everything? It's unconceivable. And we were put in front of this. You uh, Guido writes about a very interesting idea. I think that uh, the concept is really important. It's at the heart of this book, an evolutionary trap. And I think that what what this book describes is what might be called an economic trap in that you come to a point where, where the only reasonable solution is to hoist yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> now, I think that that's essentially what it sounds like. The uh, We in America, what we always on the cutting edge. We started it, and then the European bank uh, followed suit. So tell us a little bit about, uh, do you think that quantitative easing, tell us what that is, and then do you think that's an economic trap? Well, the, the the question is very interesting and very complex. Uh, I hope I will, I'll be able to answer it. Uh, first of all, an evolutionary trap is the is a is a concept uh, uh, relatively new in behavioral sciences for for uh, applied to, to to animals. Uh, there is the story uh, about these uh, um, salamanders that used to live in a very uh, dry place and then some scientists they decided to put uh, uh, to put a remedy to it to 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 let uh, some water some river uh, some stream flow into this uh, hard land hard dry land and the salamanders start to 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 feel better and to multiply and then it was a perfect uh, uh, habitat for them and then all, all of a sudden they they realized that uh, uh, a bird uh, found that the, the same habitat was also perfect for him and he started to he arrived in the same habitat and started to feed on the salamanders and he healed them all and in a way it's uh, sometimes i think that it's what happened to us when we when we invited a, a, a strong uh, determined, uh, perfectly administered country to to invade our 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 markets with with its own products, and um, when you say quantitative easing, it's uh, it's very easy to explain. It's where it's when a central bank starts to print money from out of nothing. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it starts to print money, and but there is a huge difference between how it was applied by the Federal Reserve here in the United States and what happened in Europe. Because in in the United States, part of this huge ocean of money went to the people and to the small businesses and helped them to to overcome the crisis. In Italy and in Europe, in whole Europe, uh, quantitative easing, this huge printing of money stopped at the level of states and banks. It never went into the economy. And that's why we uh, we were saved, yes, by the banking crisis that we had in after 2008. Uh, but uh, uh, we should say that our banks were saved. We are not saved yet. Now, 
You describe Italy coming into the 21st century as, in many ways, a, 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 a wonderfully pleasant place, almost heaven-like, or you know, utopia. Certainly, very utopian in terms of, you know, uh, income distribution and people, uh, people who are happy in, with with their wealth. It didn't take long for Italy to come to uh, uh, an incredible fi- financial crisis, and. Um, this brought brought out a lot of people to um, try to help save Italy. So t- tell us a little bit, of some of your thoughts about um, uh, Mario Monti and how he followed on from Berlusconi and, and just your feelings during that time when, it, when that default looked like it might really actually happen. Uh, they were, there were terrible times. Uh, what were you doing uh, then? Were you was, writing novels? Yes. I w- well, as a matter of fact, I was uh, uh, winning the only thing I have won in my life, which is, which is the the, the Strega Prize, which is um, an, a very important literary prize in Italy. In those days, I was winning the, the prize, so I was having my my first victory, uh, and in the same time, more or less. Uh, Italy uh, was uh, in the in the darkest in the darkest of times because it's uh, you know the, the spread which is the difference between um, yes. the interest rate of Italian um, bonds and German bonds um, uh, it was growing and growing and growing and growing and uh, the state could not uh, maintain those limits I mean it was going to go bankruptcy uh, and. Uh, and you start to feel that something bigger is over you, you know. And you st- and you start to think that all the life you have been living for fifty years in your in your country was something that uh, somebody else was allowing you to live. Because all of a sudden there was a huge uh, danger upon us, all of us, and uh, and Berlusconi was ill-equipped, to say the least, to rule the country in in that time. Uh, when he was ousted, well, he, he he resigned, but he was technically ousted, and uh, Mario Monti took his place. Uh, everything changed in a way that Mario Monti was able to reassure Europe and the markets and tell them that now somebody is going to take care of things. And uh, but he, the way he 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 took care of things was. Uh, was a, uh, a hard medicine for us. He raised taxes all of a sudden, and um, and we've never really recovered from that, from that hard cure. This takes us to a word that has long been meant to suggest uh, something good, but I think uh, it's yet another economic trap: austerity economics. Uh, they're meant to be good for us, but I. It doesn't. I've never liked them, and I don't think uh, they worked well for you guys. So tell us a little bit about your experience of austerity uh, economics on the ground. Here, you're trying to earn a living and put food on the table. Uh, how does that feel when the government says that uh, they need pretty much every bit of money you make? 
And then we are Italy, we yeah. are Italians. I mean, we are the, the people known all over the world for la dolce vita. <laughs> uh, for austerity for us is uh, really against our nature, no? Uh, we, we suffered a lot in, in that time because uh, we, we felt that uh, the, the presence of the state was, uh, was uh, too strong upon us. And uh, just to give you an, an idea, Uh, if you were going around in a car, if it, the car was a bit too beautiful, you might be stopped by the authorities, not from the police. And they were asking you to, um, to show the, 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 the official sheet where you, it's written how much you earn every year. So you have to drive um, around with your tax return in your exactly. car. No, you know, you're laughing, but it's true. Wow. We had to. That's scary. And, and, if, and, and if your tax return was not good enough, they were going to stop you and you're, go you're going, to, you're going to, to have your, your car confiscated until you show them that you had make, it have made your money uh, not against the law. Look, really, it was terrible. Uh, ships were blocked uh, at sea. Uh, and then all of a sudden you realize that... Uh, The world has changed, and it, this change just does not include you and your life and your experience. It, again, it's more than just losing your economical freedom. You're losing your sense, your sense of who you are in the world, your identity, in a way. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, I know that many Italians are accused often rightly, of not to paying all of our, of our taxes. But then if you, uh, you make a if you make it tighter, the, the banking rules, if you cannot uh, borrow money, you cannot spend money, uh, it, that is, that's the stasis, you know, there is nothing you can do. Uh, we talked about uh, the moment when China entered the WTO as being a turning point. Another turning point that you mentioned is uh, Mr. Clinton signing uh, Glass-Steagall, which helped to undo years of economic protection in the United States and directly led to our experience uh, of, of the financial crisis. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking is this book does a really good job of describing to those of us who lived through the financial crisis And I think intellectually understood how bad things were, but never actually had to emotionally or, as in a sense, economically experience how bad things were. It, it's a really weird experience to read this book. It's kind of like uh, getting off a plane and then reading a newspaper article how the land you just flew over was nuked. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, thank you. It's, uh, I think it's very nice what you said, and, and also very appropriate. Because you know, I I feel that economics is uh, is better to be told in a sentimental way, mm -hmm. because economics is much more than money, and uh, in a way, money is much more than money, <laughs> because your 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 hope, your ideas for the future, your your own identity. Uh, always are shown to the world um, in what you do and how you spend your money and how and, um, 
if you buy a beautiful jacket, for example, or a beautiful car or a house, it's much more than buying a, a thing. It's expressing who you are sometimes. And uh, when economics becomes difficult for everyone in, in, in the country, all of a sudden, uh, again, you lose your... Um, you lose your place in the world and uh, and it's very hard to regain it after you have lost it but if you've lost your place in the world it's possible to make a new one for yourself which is precisely what you did fueled by the upstart politics in Italy as a result of what it what had happened you ran uh, for the Italian for a place in the Italian Parliament. Tell us about the decision to do that. That's, I mean, that's way out of your bailiwick. That's two steps out of your bailiwick. Well, it's a it's, it's an incredible story, really, because when uh, when I won the Strega Prize with the book on economics, a story of my life, a story of my people. Uh, well, it was the story of my life, but the book was called the Story of My People. Uh, politicians, uh, f- I have to say, from both sides, quite curiously, they started to be interested in what I was saying, and uh, so I was offered to, to uh, a safe place in, elect- in an electoral list, and uh, uh, I didn't know what to do, frankly, because uh, I was always I, I, I was always been interested in politics, but not so much as to enter it, and and then. Uh, they kept they kept on telling me you can make a contribution you can make something you can you can be useful to the people you are writing about and uh, i decided to believe them and uh, it was you know uh, maybe the worst decision of my life uh, because i was elected that was true and so i found myself in a chamber of deputies that counts uh, 630 deputies it's more 630 than members just in the chamber and then we have in the senate 315 members that's a so th- imagine like a thousand parliament people made, exactly <laughs> you can't imagine get them to agree on anything <laughs> of course of course of course i know it's, it's and when i see the images of your congress it's always funny for me but say look how many how many people are needed to do politics, and we were almost one thousand. And believe me, it was uh, it was very it was five very difficult years for me because uh, since the first day I wanted to to get out of the parliament. But uh, there was also the problem that people actually voted for me. <laughs> you found yourself so trapped <laughs> in an evolutionary trap you'd set for yourself. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I said, "How can I can I disappoint them? Am I responsible for the people who voted for me?" And uh, and so I decided that I was responsible, and I had to wait five years. And you know, in Italy, governments are usually uh, they they don't last that long. Usually, they are uh, you know one year affairs. And uh, this one lasted five years, and so I was a prisoner of the Montecitorio Chamber for five years. Looking back on that time, do you feel it was well spent? Do you think you should have been writing? Did you do what you wanted to do? Did you accomplish anything that you are proud of? Well, uh, well, I voted for the civil union, which in Italy is a relatively uh, new conquest. 
uh, I voted for, for civil rights, and that I think it, it was very important for me. Um, but I'm sure I could have been doing much better. I could have done much better, and I'm not very proud of, of these five years. But it, no, uh, w when you are in a parliament of 630 people, it's, uh, it's extremely complicated to, to, to let your voice be heard. And, uh, and, uh, but, I'm, uh, you know, uh, don't get me wrong, I, I'm honored that I was part of it. I, I think it, it was a, a very important thing in my life, but uh, uh, I realized very soon that it, it's not my job. It's not the best thing I can do. Maybe I should stick to writing, and that's what I, what, that's what I will do in the future. Uh, you write in this book, maybe the time has come to admit that we've lost our desperate, sentimental, ludite war against the world and against the future. <laughs> I I didn't realize we we were engaged in a war against the world and against the future. But as I read your book, I realize that 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 is in fact where what we've been doing. So talk about I I think the one of the if there are, if this were a monster book, uh, one of the monsters, uh, primary monsters, the queen alien perhaps, is a globalization, and this is this kind of uh, undoing, I think, that goes on in the background. It's been going on in the background since, say, 1970 or so. Uh, yes. Uh, um, you know, uh, that sentence, I've been working on it for, for, uh, for a lot of time and uh, because it's very strong and there was a there was a time when i decided it was too strong for the book and uh, i will i said i will i will leave it out but then i realized that it was true it was terribly true because i had uh, when i was young when i was uh, until i was um, 30 years old i was uh, an enthusiast of the idea of the future i was uh, um, uh, i was an enthusiast uh, of the united states i'm still an enthusiast of the of the of the United States of your this wonderful country of yours, and uh, I came here for summer sessions at Harvard twice, and uh, and to Cornell. Um, uh, so I uh, and I love the freedom of learning that I had to that I could experience in these universities, uh, and I really thought that my future would have been fantastic, because. Uh, living in Italy in the 80s or uh, the 90s, you had the feeling that there was a fantastic uh, clockwork uh, that was ticking regularly every day and was uh, saying a few elementary things that the father used to, to say to, to their sons and daughters, just, you know, the, the classical thing to say that if you, if you study, if you work, you will have your reward. And sometimes you think that uh, this is enough you know to propel mm -hmm. a life to propel a life experience and uh, uh, so each um, when when you lose that is is uh, is, is much more than, uh, than 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 that i mean you, you lose uh, you lose your idea of the future and when you lose that uh, it's um, again it's very complicated to 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 have it back uh, and sometimes I, uh, uh, in Italy, we all feel that our time um, 
has come and gone because, you know, Italy has never been a rich country. There were rich people, but the, the mass of the people were not rich at all. And uh, uh, but they were solvent. The 50s, in, yes, <laughs> think about it. In in the nineteen fifties, money started. Well, industry started to come to Italy, and people started to 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 have well being. And in the same years, if you think about it, we had our most uh, accomplished uh, uh, movie directors. We had the best artists. We had the best writers. Uh, together with uh, with, with uh, economical growth, we had a growth in the arts which was unprecedented in Italy. You have to go back to, to the Renaissance, I think, to have something as good as what we had in those years. So it's not only the well-being that comes with money, and that uh, uh, that would, it's not enough. I mean, it's a well-being that comes from being in a in a in a in a country where all of a sudden an artist comes out, he takes a white canvas, he slashes it in the middle, Lucio Fontana, and uh, all of a sudden he says that this is how you go through with art. And you, you know nothing about art, but you instantly, you realize that this is something you have never seen before, and, and you want to understand it. And living in Italy in those years was more or less like this. Being uh, constantly put in front of something that we didn't know and uh, we were in a way forced to understand and like. And it was a, it was a fantastic feeling, believe me. Y- you write, I think, a really interesting uh, part, understanding uh, of globalization. Um, and then they whisper clearly embarrassed, their last possible argument, the one that claims that globalization rescued a billion people from poverty. And it's true. This time it's true. They're right. Whether it's actually a billion is open to discussion because the number is certainly lower than that. But basically, it's true. Now, however, they just need to explain that they were kidding earlier and that the real reason globalization was imposed upon the world was this, to help those billion people. All we need to do now is for them to explain kindly and charitably that right from the outset, the multinationals that were paying them to spread these optimistic fairy tales of theirs throughout the Western world had actually decided to trigger the bloodbath of small businesses and their millions of employees for this one objective and for this one objective alone to raise one billion Chinese out of poverty. (laughs) <laughs> there's a, there's a good sense of humor in this book. I think the the it's dark, but between the humor and your ability to find a human story amidst the absolute chaos of globalization, it, it it's admirable and it's heartening. I mean, this book gives us hope that at least we can see things for the way they really are. Thank you so much for reading so well. <laughs> also. Uh, uh, yes, it's it, you know, uh, it's very hard to understand how this fairy tale could go on for for so long because uh, it, it's 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 really the, the last argument. And uh, uh, hearing it read from you, it it starts to burn again <laughs> inside myself <laughs> because uh, it's as if they they said. Uh, 
okay, no, because they, they told us it would have been much better for us. They told us it would have been a success, that globalization would have been fantastic. <laughs> they told us that we, we would have made money. So, <laughs> And then they're still there. The great economists, the great journalists, I mean, how could they get it so wrong? And then at the end, they tell us, eh, well, yes, maybe it didn't go so well, but you have to be happy for the billions of Chinese people that were raised from from poverty and on that we we might discuss a lot because uh, if you think about uh, uh, the phenomenon of fast fashion um, something that i would like to say something about if i may sure tell us um, about uh, the fast fast fashion which also known as depeche mode and <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you 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 quoted uh, stanislaw lem and let me please quote Ursula again. Oh, thank you. Uh, the fantastic writer who wrote a fantastic short story, which is still in my mind. It's always in my mind. It's those who walk away from Omelas. That's the title. Oh, yes. It, yes. It, it tells, the, it's a short story that tells the uh, story of a city where everybody is happy, where everybody is rich, where everybody lives without working where even the weather is always good. A city of perpetual happiness for everybody. But there is a price. A young boy lives all alone in the dark, in a cell, in a prison, and he is left there without any company, and he's given just enough food su to survive. And he is the scapegoat. His unhappy, his total unhappiness is the price for the happiness of all the others, of, of everybody. And so you have the, uh, in the story, the people that say, that try to save him from this terrible destiny, but uh, they realize that if they save the boy from destiny, all the happiness of the others will be canceled instantly. And so they cannot stand even this responsibility, and so they walk away from Omelas. And this idea of the scapegoat, is, I think, very interesting when it comes to fast fashion because when you buy a shirt for $9.99, when you buy trousers for $19.99, there has to be somebody exploited somewhere. And you cannot uh, think that there is not. Somebody has been exploited, maybe in China, maybe in Vietnam, maybe in Bangladesh, somewhere. Somewhere is being totally underpaid to give you the chance to save money on your jeans and on your shirts. And this is something we should understand. We should keep in mind every time we uh, think to have been favored by globalization. There is somebody exploited in order to give us our product. You mention a name in this book. Uh, Aaron Schwartz, here's a, a, a young man who was in many ways a, an unbelievable genius, but a, a genius unable to, uh, to, too far ahead of his time, unable to, to, to cope with what he was able to do, the consequences of his own genius. And I think that's a, a really powerful and interesting portrait. And he's an interesting fellow for you to pick out. Why did you uh, 
focus on Aaron Schwartz? Because to me and to Guido, uh, he was a symbol of a possible uh, way of uh, salvation. Because when you have technology, when you have um, internet, and uh, because I still remember the days at the beginning of the, of the phenomenon when we said that internet was going to offer to everybody uh, the chance to read the best books in the world and to know everything in the world. Everything was free and at your disposal. Uh, then it came out that it, it was not. That it was, now internet has become a gigantic emporium where every, you can find everything, yes, but you have to pay for everything. And uh, uh, that uh, romantic idea from Swartz that uh, everything uh, had to be uh, put in uh, put together, could be offered free to everyone, that was a, a way of, uh, I think, of, of the greatest progress. Because uh, even that, even that we have lost. And I remember there are a few fantastic pages by him when he says that, uh, well, yes, if I, if I download a song, uh, I can make, a, I can, I can hurt the earnings of, a, of a record company. But even a negative review can hurt, <laughs> uh, can hurt uh, the earnings of a record company. Even good weather, even uh, your girlfriend can hurt the uh, earnings of a publishing company because you are not going to buy the book or to buy the record because you have you are living a life, you know, and living a life mean means put everything uh, in front of yourself. So that was the fantastic part of Swartz, and I think that he was representing uh, uh, a glorious idea of a future which we could embrace because they would if they told me well you are uh, you don't have your textile company anymore but you have a world where really everything is at your hands and you just have to learn from them then i would have accepted that now uh, you begin the book with <clears throat> bill and hillary clinton celebrating the turn of the century your intention was to end it with the uh, coronation, as it were, of, of Hillary Clinton. Didn't work out that way. In fact, you found yourself with a book that outwardly expressed uh, sympathy uh, for many of the ideas of a man who you inimically oppose, our current president, Donald Trump. So talk about that experience <laughs> of history giving you guys a, a pretty decent surprise and along with the rest of the world. Well, yes. The first big surprise was the night of the elections and that I wanted to follow. And in Italy, it's, it's a bit complicated because we are six years ahead. So it was very late when Florida was lost uh, by Hillary Clinton and by myself too in a way and so i went to bed and i said uh, that there was going to happen something that i really didn't like uh, but with guido we had decided that the end of the book had to be the inaugural speech of the new president and even if it was not hillary and uh, 
And if it was Donald Trump, we had to close the circle opened by Bill Clinton in 1999. So we listened to, we watched every, I watched every moment uh, of the inaugural speech since the beginning when President Obama was bringing Donald Trump to, to the Capitol. And, um, and we heard and we saw the inaugural speech and, uh, and uh, I called Guido at night and I said, we have to cancel the book. <laughs> we have to cancel the book because because the the arguments that uh, uh, that your current president made were very similar to the ones uh, we 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 made in we put in our book and that the things that we thought that were missing from us but there was a twist that we totally could not accept i mean the uh, the the things of immigration the things on uh, on outer key on the idea of uh, America first, the things that uh, uh, you had to build a wall, uh, all these things that were put together with to the defense of a middle class that it's necessary and important, they were uh, represented uh, from a man that I could not believe was a real paladin of the middle class, not having been. <laughs> at least the member of it, not even for one second in his life. Uh, uh, it was very hard for us, and it was not only a joke they want to cancel the book, because it's very important that we understand how uh, if, we, if you want to fight this kind of globalization, you have to be able to do it on your own terms without being compared to uh, to a politician that had an unexpected success. So uh, we are very far away from Donald Trump and we wanted to express that by renouncing the book. But then Guido told me, no, Eduardo, you, we, we, we have been made clear, we have made clear that we, are, we, that we oppose these kind of ideas. And so at the end, we decided to go on with the book. You know, I think that one of the most interesting aspects of this book is is the idea of turning a, a lot of information into a story. I mean, this is really a, a powerful story of the last twenty years, and you've done such a, a a good job at condensing this. It's like you read this book in a breath, and you stand up and you go, "Oh my God!" So, uh, uh, my question for you is, um. Having written this, do you? How did you shape the story? There's, all, I mean, so much happened in the last twenty years. You seem to find the parts that were about you and targeted towards your experience. Yet it has a universal feel to it too. Well, thank you. It's uh, uh, it, in a way, it's it's a huge, big story and. Uh, we try to to keep it uh, uh, as similar as possible to a, to a novel, because uh, uh, in a way it's it's the novel of our lives. Um, I really think it's the novel of our lives, and it's something that uh, uh, it might be read in the future as a, as not only a chronicle but even something that uh, uh, could become in a way a, a, a real story. Mm. Um, not only information put together. And so um, I'm glad you said that. Thank you.
The new book by Eduardo Nessi, my guest, and Guido Maria Brera is Everything is Broken Up and Dances, The Crushing of the Middle Class. Thank you for joining me, Eduardo. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure and an honor. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.